Welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Tucker. It is April 8th, 2019, and this is episode number 18. Uh, so I wanted to apologize a little bit about delay between episodes. I thought that I would be giving myself a little more downtime, and I have not. Uh, and with work on what I, what I have in store for Wild Resistance number 7 and the books that I'm working on, there's a good chance that I probably won't. It doesn't hurt to remind me every now and then, say, hey, you know, dude, it's been a bit since you've done an episode, so uh, get on one. And to the people who have reminded me and have said something about it, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, so the big thing since the last episode is Wild Resistance number six is finally out. Uh, it's been out now for a month or two. Uh, so uh, getting some really good responses to it and people are stoked as I would be the case. There's some really, really great stuff in here. Uh, particularly there's a, a three interview block in the field notes from the Primal War section uh, with Luis Felipe Torres, Torres Espinoza, Madhusri Mukherjee, and Sidovan Kachwar. Uh, and those three interviews deal with um, voluntarily isolated hunter-gatherer societies. In Luis's case, that's the Mashko Piro. And with Madhusri and Sida's case, that is about the Sendamalese Islanders. Uh, and those three interviews are just one of the things that I think make this journal really awesome and worth checking out. And of course, uh, the past issues, they don't they don't get dated. Uh, number five in particular has a lot of really awesome stuff uh, that I hope people will be interested in and want to check out. Uh, so please do so. The seventh issue, the deadline for it right now is still September of this year. Uh, the focus on that one is on decolonization and anti-civilization so this is our first time actually doing a themed issue uh, and we have some really awesome stuff lined up for it but i'd love to get a lot more and i particularly like to get discussions around decolonization and resistance decolonization and rewilding uh, if you have ideas on it if you have things that you'd like to be covered or people that are worth talking to or know anybody that you think would would be interesting to contribute to any of these discussions or contribute to this issue let them know. Let us know. That's how these things happen. So really excited about that one. Um, and I'm, I've got some beastly stuff that I'm going to be working on for it as well. Uh, so there's a good chance I'll end up down the rabbit hole for a while again. And hopefully also uh, getting Upgazi Country out or done in the not too distant future. But there's a lot of things in the works. Uh, in that case as well uh, for wildness and anarchy the second revised and expanded edition uh, i have been working on pretty considerably i have almost all of it done i have some people doing editing now and if there are people that are interested in doing editing and proofreading and things like that i am always interested in that i've cut a couple things from the first edition uh, there's there's some stuff in here that I didn't feel was quite as strong and some things in here that I thought were missing. So some unpublished stuff or previously unpublished stuff is going to be in the second edition. Uh, and I'm going to be doing some crowdfunding or whatever, some fundraising kind of stuff as well. Uh, I basically cannot print that book until I've got some of the debt that Black and Green has accrued over the past years chiseled down. So... 
uh, whatever we can do. And if people have suggestions, please let me know. Uh, but if you can help out with donating, it is vastly helpful buying the books, buying shirts, buying anything else that we sell. Uh, that all helps a lot. But printing books, and people tell me all the time, it's like books are expensive. It's like, no, they're very expensive for me uh, because they cost thousands of dollars. And yeah, it's not, not necessarily an easy process, but I still think it's really important. Um, I'm, I'm eager for the second edition to come out because there's a lot of things in here that needed to have some updates and needed to have some editing very, very badly. Uh, some of these files... You know, they go back to 2000 and they're kind of a nightmare to work with in some cases. And, uh, you know, looking at things that I've written nearly 20 years ago, obviously it can be kind of painful. And I know that there are people who really want to see the second edition of this book. Um, so it was good for me to be able to go through and, and make some, correct some errors that had been very long standing at this point. Uh, and then include some of the extra stuff as well. Plus take out a few of the things that, I didn't, I just didn't care for quite as much. Uh, you know, going back through it, I do think, you know, for people who are looking for more of an introductory uh, book or, or anything like that, you know, I've talked about doing Roots, this field guide to anarcho-primitivism. I've written large chunks of it. Uh, I kind of keep going back and forth on it. And what ends up happening is that I'm weighing out the main work that I'm doing right now versus doing things like going back to Roots. And the main work is more interesting to me virtually every time. It doesn't mean I won't write roots and it doesn't mean that I shouldn't. And people are still curious and interested, but kind of my internal discussion on a lot of these things is what ends up with the essay to the captives that's in wild resistance, where I talk about the terms anarcho-primitivism versus the versus what I've been leaning more towards, which is talking about primal anarchy. Uh, and part of the reason that, it's easier for me to kind of go back to this primal anarchy and deal with this stuff and going through uh, for wildness and anarchy is a good reminder is there are things in here uh, that are, are kind of or have been pretty standard bear anarcho-primitive stuff um, or part of the anarcho-primitive critique in terms of symbolic thought and symbolic culture that I just I don't necessarily uh, put the same emphasis on as, as John Zerzen would. Uh, which isn't a problem, it's not an issue or anything like that, but, you know, there's an essay in this book called The Spectacle of the Symbolic that was from Species Trader number three. So it was from 2003, and it was me trying to grasp or, or grapple with some of the symbolic stuff, uh, and, you know, I just didn't feel like it was quite as strong. Uh, and in... My book, Gather Remains, I have two essays in there. One is to speak of wildness, and the other one is subject subject. And they're more what I have felt and what I continue to feel, which is that things like language, to me, aren't a problem. But when you split out the difference between written language versus oral language, then you start to get into a lot more very concrete and solid uh, issues with, with symbolic culture. Basically, the idea that you're creating this lens that you're mediating your reality through. Um, and it's, you know, part of this comes down to the fact that uh, I'm a cultural materialist and there's other people involved with the journal uh, Wild Resistance from Black and Green Review that are also cultural materialists in, in the way that, that we've approached it is more like, you know, these, some of these things 
change in terms of their impact or they become used by people in power to impact everybody. I mean, obviously language and uh, history, time are all concepts that are used by people in power, but you know, there, there are versions of it that egalitarian societies have had for a very long time. And some of the earlier anarcho-primitive stuff, some of John's earlier questions were coming about at a time where it did not appear that the idea of language or the idea of uh, language really is what it's coming down to. Language and art were more relatively recent and I, I don't believe that they are, and I don't believe that they've had as much impact as they could have once you bring writing into account and things like that. Uh, so there's there's kind of more nuance about it, uh, and also in my sense, just you know, I I don't know if I put as much emphasis on it, and it's it's been a part of this reflective pattern that goes along with the books that appears I'm not writing, which I'm constantly thinking about these things. It's just a matter of what actually comes out. But in terms of a primer, in terms of, of something that is, uh, well, one, the essays within it are considerably shorter, but uh, covering a lot of ground in what I would say is more of an introductory way or kind of building more of a foundation for a lot of the work that I have been doing. Um, this, for a while, this anarchy is definitely bad. Uh, and I should mention as well, uh, I did, and every now and then again, every now and then again, this does happen. I did get copies from a former distributor that had shut down that were sitting in a box for a while. They probably won't last very long, but there's a uh, some copies on the web store, which is blackandgreenreview.org backslash shop. Uh, there's some copies of the first edition of Philosophy Anarchy. If you're really feeling that you want to have the first edition, um, you know, it's there. I can tell you, wholeheartedly from having spent a good bit of time with it the second edition's got to be a lot better but i don't know sellers on amazon seem to think it or that i should say algorithms on amazon seem to think it's worth hundreds of dollars and i can also tell you unequivocally that it is not but i, I got it listed on the site for like 18 bucks so if you're interested there are some copies there uh otherwise i should have information about that i should be working on getting pre-orders and getting fundraising stuff and everything like that figured out potentially within a month. Uh, at this point, it's just down to nailing down some more of the details and, and going back through a few more things that were unpublished and seeing what it is that I want to include from all that. And then it'll be ready to go. So the big thing for this episode that I want to finish up is hopefully get through the last of these book recommendations because it has been weighing heavily on me that I have not finished that up. Uh, and it is worth repeating that uh, the book recommendations is, is always going to be kind of incomplete. The idea is always going to be, these are some generalized recommendations and I tend to give very specific recommendations when people ask me for them. Uh, so this is kind of my, my take on if you're looking for these kinds of things or you're getting interested in anti-civilization or, or critiques of civilization and things like that. These are some starting points. Um, I know that people have asked me for some specifics, and I apologize if I have not covered them. If I haven't, then I'll just keep doing what I normally do with the podcast, which is I'll talk about books that I'm reading and talk about things that are interesting to me as they come and as they go. Uh, and then a, in addition, keep kind of adding on here and there for other books that, that come up or other books that I remember that come along and and speak to me and I, I tend to 
if you've listened to the podcast or where I tend to go on about things that I'm that are on my mind kind of a thing so really this episode is going to be dealing with that stuff hopefully we'll get it out of the way and then I'll go back to just talking about a book or two uh, that I'm reading as the episodes go along and we can go back to what most people probably want which is me spiraling into rage and depression cycles while I cope with the kinds of things that I'm working on in real life through the podcast. Uh, so let me try and think here. I, I should make a note as well. Uh, I get emails. I don't tend to print letters in the journal or read things on air uh, f- that I get unless i am given some kind of notice that I should specifically. So if something is written for me to read or react to in the journal or on air, please let me know. Uh, but let me check here. I think there's a couple things. I have questions and things that I was asked to go through um, for the podcast. And I know one big one that I get often is, you know, fiction that I recommend for book recommendations. Um, obviously, the big one that I always recommend is Natasha's Liminal. I put it out. It's an excellent book. Uh, and I strongly recommend it. Unfortunately, we only have the ebook version available. Uh, but that is in the web store as well. It's a, a quick read, but a really good one. In terms of recommendations for fiction, though, I do like fiction, but I'm not going to include very much or really anything uh, in the generalized fiction category. Clayton Elliott's Return. Uh, I'm not sure what formats that's available anymore. It was a paperback book, and as far as I can remember, I think it came out about 15 years ago. Uh, he's from the UK. Uh, that, that book was good. I really like that one. Uh, talking about the collapse of civilization. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a good book. Uh, but there's fiction books that have been influential for me and fiction books. I also just like reading, uh, and I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to say that these are the books or the starting points that I would necessarily recommend. Uh, I will say Daniel Quinn's Ishmael story B and my Ishmael. I know those books have mattered a lot to a lot of people, and I am not one of them. I read those books after already being involved with anarcho-primitivism and after already having a critique of civilization and already also having a critique of some of the perspectives that he had had or he had taken through the character of Ishmael and the entire complex of it. Uh, I'm just not too big of a fan of Daniel Quinn, and I think by the time his book Beyond Civilization had come out, it was really just kind of like, okay, this was just a, a pretext for you. This is just a, a way of approaching things. And yeah, I just I didn't really care for it. And there's some things in there that are problematic in ways. It's not like, oh, you know, there's some horrible thing I know about him as far as I know. I don't know anything about him being this huge racist, sexist person or anything like that. It's just in terms of the approach that he had taken, I just never really felt it personally. And like I said, I know it's meant a lot to a lot of people, but it just never meant a lot to me. Uh, So if you're new to things, I mean, that might matter. That might be good for you. But whether I would include that in a generalized list, the times that I have are solely because it's meant a lot to other people and not so much because of what it had meant for me. So again, another thing to kind of take into account whenever looking at this list of recommendations and the things that I'm going to recommend I have my reasons for being kind of a a picky asshole, I guess, in a lot of ways, uh, and various things I might nitpick 
can change the way that I'll remember what comes to mind about other books that I would otherwise recommend. Um, and yeah, that's comes with the territory, I guess. Uh, so one other book I did want to mention that I didn't mention last time, I don't believe it's talking about some indigenous resistance books and things like that. Um, because socialism and communism seem to be having an inexplicable resurgence, uh, Ward Churchill edited a volume called Marxism and Native Americans that came out, I think, Society Press, or South End Press, sorry. I don't know, that was 80s or 90s. I'm thinking it was 80s, but I could be wrong about that. I don't have the book in front of me. Um, there's some stuff in there that I think is really good, and it's basically indigenous perspectives on socialist and communist ideology. And it's a great way of, of dissecting just how different these you know, supposedly revolutionary ideologies are from communities that actually lived in egalitarian, relatively egalitarian states and how they had approached the world and how, you know, um, how that perspective and how an indigenous resistance perspective has no natural crossover with revolutionary thinking. And that that's an important thing. I mean, even when you look at, at the death of Che Guevara, uh, Shea thought that the Kayapo natives of Brazil would have more affinity for his socialist thinking than the you know capitalist state. Uh, that they didn't, and there was no reason that they would have, and no reason they should have. But they weren't going to just fall in line with the socialist revolutionary group, just the same as a lot of indigenous groups haven't had anything or wanted anything to do with the many socialist and communist groups that have existed in in Latin America and South America. Uh, for you know the past hundred years or so, uh, but that that cost Shea's life. That's what ended that rebellion, that resistance. He just innately thought and believed, as as most ideologue, ideologues are going to believe, is that calling themselves communist or calling themselves socialist was going to make them the the voice of the people. And you know that's a very specific kind of mentality and a specific kind of ideology and relationship with the world that is innate to industrial societies and has no purpose for societies that have no want for industrialism. Uh, so I didn't mention that. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of books that I'll, I'll remember and come up along the way that I'll say I should have included that. And I will do my best to include that. Uh, and again, to people who I'm not covering specific topics that they'd asked about. Um, yeah. So I got, one person wrote and asking about American history book suggestions. There's a lot of books that I have read that I have not a good enough recollection of to say that I would give them a flat out recommendation. I do think books like Charles Mann's 1491 and 1493 are, are both really good books and have really good aspects to them. Um, there's a, a number of other things that I, I'll just, I'll just have to think about it and see what I come up with afterwards. But a couple of recent books that I've read that are, I think are really awesome. Um, I know I mentioned Greg Grandin's new book, The End of the Myth, uh, on the last episode. And I just want to re restate that book is very excellent. And I think it's getting a lot of attention and it should continue to get a lot of attention if you want to understand the nature of the American empire. Uh, that's a really good one. And it, it works off of, it plays off of Richard Drennan's Facing West, which was an earlier book. And I think that book is, they're not exclusion, exclusionary at all. They, they work really well together. Uh, so I would check out those two books. 
and I'm also I'm not done with it, but I'm just going through it. Uh, and now uh, there's a newer book that I got to remember the name of the author of. It's uh, Daniel Amarwar. It's the book is called How to Hide an Empire: History of the Greater United States. I've been really enjoying this book, uh, and just looking through it, I don't think that's going to change in any major way. Uh, but yeah, I think the the idea even of understanding America, the United States as an empire, is a really important thing. But this book is is looking at you know what is considered the logo map of the United States and how that has encapsulated our minds about understanding what America is and what American history is. But between those books, the Gandon book is the great, the Grandin book and between Emmerwar's new book, those are two that I think are, are really good starting point. And there's a whole lot more. I just know I'm not thinking of right now. And there's a lot of books to talk about uh, from a native perspective about the Americas that are really important. And even as I say that I'm thinking of other stuff here, but uh I, you know, I kind of got to go back through before I start just making blank recommendations. Uh, I will say that I did think Francis Jennings, uh, the ambiguous Iroquois empire was really good for understanding, you know, very early contact, uh, and the fur trade. Uh, and I, I know I, I'll just continue to make the recommendation. Eric Wolf's Europe and the people without history is a very, very good, really, really good book. Um, and, of course, Freddie Perlman's Against History, Against Leviathan, if you're looking for more of a narrative version. But his book, The Straight, also takes a lot of fascinating kind of turns and takes the idea of following the expansion of European and European colonization of the Americas in a way, in a novelized form, and in a way that is just really kind of captivating and, and really, even from a, just a writing perspective, something that I think is really interesting. Uh but yeah, there's there's plenty of other books that are out there, and there's also a lot of native histories that I think are really good and have a lot of things that are really important. Uh, but there's also going to be a lot that comes along with most standard history books that is going to be, you know, something you have to wade through. And so I know a newer book that's coming out uh, about Native American history uh, is a book called "The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee," uh, I believe, and I going through it and looking at it, I mean, he's got a whole section in there talking about Leonard Peltier and AIM and, you know, just talking about how they were like thugs or whatever and they're acting like a gang and all this shit. And I, I know in a certain extent with with aspects of AIM, there there's a lot to it. Uh, but that characterization is, you know, obviously obviously political in its own regards and, and just indicative of the idea that there's there's a lot more complex history and a lot more complexity that comes with trying to make generalized recommendations, which is why, and probably a good reason why, me doing this stuff is, is taking as long as it is to get through. So um, there's that. And then I think there was one other question here, and that is uh, thoughts on Tom Brown Jr., now, I should include Tom Brown Jr. in the fiction section, I believe. Uh, and again, he's, he's kind of like Daniel Quinn. I know a lot of people that have been very heavily impacted by his books. And again, I was not one of them. Uh, the tracker and the whole mythology that he had been creating, the whole grandfather thing. I mean, there's just so much about it that's bullshit. He, he's had a history of 
pissing off co-authors and pissing off people who have been effectively almost ghostwriting some of the stuff or just writing down kind of these tales that he had sold. And, you know, I, I know people who've gone to the tracker school and have great experience. And I know people who have gone through the programs and they, they see great things. And for me, it's hard not to get past this whole kind of like ordained, fictionized version of, of his own origin story and not just see cults. But I'm reading a lot about cults and following up a lot about cult stuff. So it's kind of like, I feel like I'm seeing that everywhere right now. But you take somebody like Tom Brown, you take some of the stuff that he says and the, the kind of nonsensical reasons that they might have for portraying this this particularly storied version of their coming to be. And yeah, I just don't like it. Uh, so as far as this technical stuff goes, I like it. Uh, I think there's some good stuff to it, but it's never been my go-to. Uh, that said, um, you know, I as far as Paul Resendez goes, as far as some of these people that have worked under or with Tom Brown for some time, and even a lot of John Young's work, uh, I think some of the work they do is excellent. Uh, so, you know, I'm not trying to throw them all out with them or anything like that, or or even say that I, I have affinity or support for what even people like John Young are doing now. Um, but just saying as far as things that have been influential or been important for me, that's just my own take on it. And I, I don't see Tom Brown's stuff very highly in my own regard. And I do know I was asked before about kids' books. And I know people have asked before about books on kids and parenting and things like that. And that's a whole other topic. But uh, I will give a couple of kids' books recommendations, just some ones that I, I like. Um, and they're all picture books. Uh, my daughter's both six. So, you know, this is stuff that they like and I like as well. Uh, Wild by Emily Hughes. Uh, Whale in a Fishbowl is a newer one that I, I liked. Uh, the book called Jimmy Button. I like that one a lot. Uh, and I Know a Bear. I like that. And Oliver Jeffers' The Moose Belongs to Me. Obviously, they're not always going to be as as profound or as in-depth as most of the books I'm going to recommend. But at the same time, a book like I Know a Bear or a book like Wild is pretty damn awesome. And even Jimmy Button, uh, those are all ones that are are really good. And if you've got kids, if you're reading picture books to kids, those are my recommendations for that. And before I get too much further here, I do want to give one recommendation for if you're interested in this podcast, naturally, I have to recommend my own books. Uh, Cold Personality, Gathered Remains. If you like what I'm talking about on the podcast, I can't recommend strongly enough that you, you check these books out. Uh, if you want a less unhinged and tangential version of the critiques that I give and my reactions to things, that's where I lay it all out. This is kind of like the overflow of the research process and, and all that. And just, you know, the things I'm looking through, the things I'm working through, the things I'm talking about, things I'm thinking about. I can be much more articulate in print. And that's kind of where I, where I, I go with all this stuff. Uh, I've been doing a lot for the cold personality and it has been getting attention from the pro ayahuasca community which is both interesting and i think only going to get more interesting in time uh but it is it is catching people's attention and i believe it is being translated also in a number of languages uh 
but I'm really happy with the reaction I get. And it's hard to say that about a book like, or it's, it's hard to say positive things even for myself about a book like Cole because it was a very painful book to write, a very painful period of research and, and a very painful subject and just painful in all regards. So going through all that is difficult and very hard and very necessary. Um, and I'm proud of what I've done in these books, but it's also kind of hard to say, hey, I'm really happy with how these books came out because the subject matter is insanely complicated and heart-wrenching and in many ways very impossible to kind of cope with on a, on a personal level. That said, you know, this is this is the work I do. This is why... This is why I do all this stuff, is to get this stuff out of here. So if you're interested in what I'm doing, uh, like I said, for Wilds and Anarchy, the second edition will be out again soon. There are a couple of copies of the first one still floating around. Um, it's good kind of introductory and building up on the concepts that I've been continually working on, but I don't look at it anything from Wildness and Anarchy. And I mean, of course I look at it and I think, you know, I would do things differently and it's hard to look at some of this stuff sometimes and think, you know, look at it the way that I, I get handed stuff sometimes to edit or to look over and I have my own views on how I would do it differently. Uh, but you know, there's, there's still a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm really proud of a lot of what's in that book and even stuff like, uh, the failure of revolution, which was only ever in the first edition of that book. And I, I, it's online. I should probably get the corrected versions of some of these essays online as well. Uh, but there's a lot in that, that one that was, I think really, really good to get out. But uh, in terms of my own work, the, the the depth that comes from that is the is much more profound in, in later books like Cold Personality, Gathered Remains, the book I'm working on of Gods and Country, and a lot of the other stuff I've been working on that's been coming out in Black and Green Review and Wild Resistance. So there it is. I'm giving a plug for my own books and saying that if you're listening to this podcast, if you're interested in hearing me talk, you should be much more interested in reading what I write because then it's a lot more uh, articulate, I guess. I'm much more on point. All right, so let's go through some of these other books. All right, so I've got a bunch of books stacked around me now, and I think I'm going to try and power through these quicker than I have been on the other ones just so we can get through this and, uh, yeah, get some of these recommendations out there. So let's start with some history um, so I, I probably have used the terms, um, on the podcast a number of times. I've been calling my work more in line with ethno history, ethno history being a combination of cultural anthropology and history or more, you know, cultural history and things like that. Uh, it's really about, you know, taking these kind of deep dives into particular areas and trying to understand all the different stories to it. Uh, and I, I think it's an important field. I think there's there's definitely always going to be issues with everything, and uh, you know I know that James Axtell, who was a huge ethno historian and had gotten into it with Ward Churchill in the early '90s, um, when James Axtell did something that's seemingly uncharacteristic of a lot of his work, and had actually said that uh, the genocide of in Native America wasn't genocide because there wasn't an intent which is the classic academic line that parrots, uh, you know, virtually virtually everything else that happens in civilization uh, in, of passing the blame. And the whole intent thing 
Yeah, obviously it's coverage. Obviously genocide would happen if it's incidental or if it's just it's not. You know, in in the case of what Axel was talking about, kind of making it sound like uh, if there were some people who didn't want the genocide of Native Americans, that somehow invalidates the idea that genocide had been happening. Uh, you know, again, so there, there's no way you're going to find terms that aren't problematic or don't have problematic people. And even with that, you know, James Axel, Francis Jennings, both their work, I think, is, has a, a lot of really great stuff in it. But, you know, that's the problem with all the recommendations is. You, know, you have to understand there's there's going to be things within it that just aren't that good. So a lot of the history that I like and a lot of history that I, I tend to lean towards, you know, it really kind of blurs the line between anthropology and, and social history, cultural history. But there's some books that are written from this perspective or from, you know, these kind of emerging fields that I think are really, truly excellent. So I'm just going to go through a couple of them because I think that with, with the history stuff in particular, uh, you know, as, as a, I say on the podcast quite often, uh, kind of paraphrasing a friend of mine, Evan, who had been on the Badger Roundtable episode. You know, you keep pulling on any thread long enough, and you're going to under you're going to unravel the entirety of civilization. And so, for me, these these history books are kind of uh, a part of that. Uh, Adam Hochschild's uh, King Leopold's Ghost, talking about the rubber trade in King Leopold II from Belgium uh, and his brutal rule over the Congo. And if you've read Cole Personality or you've listened to me talk about it and talk about the rubber trade, it is impossible to overstate just the sheer brutality of it. But it's really important looking at King Leopold's impacts and how he was going about it because it's the ultimate and literal whitewashing. Uh, he was being portrayed within Europe and intentionally so at the time of being this anti-slavery crusader. Uh yeah. Meanwhile, he is he's almost single handedly responsible for the enslavement of just so many people and the destruction and, and brutality towards so many people within the Congo. This book is very easy to find. It is really, really good. Uh, it's written really well. I strongly recommend it. Michelle Roth Trulio. I've been quoting him consistently uh, for some time in my writing. And I think this book can be easy to overlook. The subtitle of it is Power and the Production of History. If you want to look at a book about history and the way that historical events are created, that's written really, really, really well and covers really, really important topics. This was written around the um, 500-year anniversary of Columbus uh, landing, incidentally, in the Americas and talking about how that's been viewed in, in historical senses like this book is it's hard to overstate how good it is and i've been probably citing it a lot more since writing things like gather remains and but it's it's never been far from my mind sydney mints sweetness and power the place of sugar in modern history again a lot of the a very similar kind of take and and sydney mints uh is an anthropologist and this is a piece of history and it's an excellent piece of that uh, he's coming from, he was, you know, there's a whole school within anthropology following Julian Stewart, who's a cultural ecologist, the founder of cultural ecology, and all of his students who I'm going to be getting into have been very influential for me in terms of cultural materialism. But, you know, for the most part, they were Marxists, but they were Marxists that were more anthropologically inclined and historically inclined than Marx or Engels ever would have been. And so their understandings were much deeper, much greater and in many cases, they end up being a huge indictment of civilization itself, especially knowing that Marx and Engels would have never approved of that kind of thing. 
But Sweetness and Power is really excellent because it shows, one, the brutality of the sugar industry and also the insanity of it. Uh, but it's it's a good look at understanding, you know, that every single product that is brought to us within civilization has this kind of a history behind it. And it's really easy, you know, it's a really good book. It's very, it's not an academic book. It's another one I strongly recommend. Uh, Exterminate All the Brutes. This book's Fen Linguist. One Man's Odyssey into the Heart of Darkness and the Origins of European Genocide. There's a lot of books, and I'm going to recommend another one, that follow in line with Hochschild's King Leopold's Ghost. And for the most part, it talks about things like the rubber trade. And um, this one it follows uh, Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness in a lot of ways. And I focus on that quite often, and I find a lot of books that are written about it that are really good. And even uh, Hearts of Darkness being one of them. And it's it's interesting looking at the book Hearts of Darkness and the movie adaptation Apocalypse Now. Because that typified really what Hearts of Darkness was about. Uh, what Conrad had been getting at. So Conrad was involved in the Congo expeditions in the late 1800s. Uh, and it was a part of the, the rubber trade. And it was a part of all these things. And he'd seen that these insane personalities come about in the frontier in these places of permissibility. And, you know, it becomes the role of Colonel Kurtz. And you see throughout every instance of colonization, every instance of frontier and extractivism, you know, when these Europeans are removed from from everything they had known and are given this role uh, to just dispossess, displace, dismember, and enslave people, they create these insane kind of conditions. And... There's there's a whole legacy of historical writing that has kind of fallen out around that and finding these kind of characters and just uncovering them. And there's this one is really well written. And it's definitely not an academic book, uh, but it is, it's a really good one. I do recommend that. Uh, John Gray's Al-Qaeda and What It Means to Be Modern. This is another one that's like kind of a, a quick book. Um, and yeah, I think without... References and stuff like that are talking about 119 pages. It's a pretty quick read. John Gray's written a bunch of stuff that I can go both ways about. Uh, his book, Straw Dogs, you know, there's aspects of it that were good and there's aspects of it that are way too philosophical. But this, the underlying thing about his, his work is uh, to attack it kind of progressivist thought um, and to undermine a lot of the productionist ideas that have come a long way within civilization. Um, and he's got some ups and downs. He's got some, some hits and misses. Some of his books are better than others. And sometimes, you know, the book like straw dogs could be like 75% really good and 25% you're a philosopher and you miss the mark. This book, however, is, it came out in 2003 and it is really, really well done. And kind of talking about how, uh, even our sense about what is considered traditional within civilization and within modernity is really just this amalgam of trying to to give a uh, traditionalist justification or explanation for very, very modern ideas. And he, he had some follow-up to this book when ISIS came onto the scene, and a lot of it was effectively saying everything I said for Al-Qaeda is also true for ISIS. Um and obviously that is that's very true, but in kind of undermining the role that would uh, supposedly like um, traditionalist, you know, terrorist organization, or whatever was was 
vouching for was saying is just another iteration of the same civilized narratives uh, and all the all the promise that we believe we have put in technology. It's a quick read. It's a really good one. I'm not sure how hard it is to find that one these days, but it's, it's one of those ones that's always stood out with me. Uh, and another one in the line of uh, the books about following Conrad, uh, Rivers of Blood, Rivers of Gold by Mark Cocker, Europe's Conquest of Indigenous People. This book is really, really well written. I love this book, and I've referenced it a lot, and I'm going to continue. Uh, we're just talking about the, the colonization and the forward march of empire and all these same kind of instances of just eradication of indigenous societies. Even if James Axtell didn't believe it was genocide, Mark Cocker gives good reason to believe otherwise. When he goes through, there's four sections, the conquest of Mexico, the British in Tasmania, the dispossession of the Apache, and the Germans in Southwest Africa. Uh, and again, finding these same kind of threads about uh, this, this Kurtz-like character and also just the, the way that resistance and the way that expansionism had been articulated in all these different in instances, uh, different situations, but effectively all treated the same. That book's really good. And this is kind of a, a side here. Uh, talking about history uh, in a weird way, but talking about anarchist history and green anarchist history, I'm going to throw in Will Potter's Green is the New Red. Uh, this book is, you know, it's not horribly old, it's from 2011, uh, but talking about the Green Scare, which is something that I, I feel like a lot of people probably aren't quite as familiar with, but that was effectively the government's campaign of rounding up as many people related to or believed to be associated with the Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front and the the effort to weed those people out and to penalize acts of resistance. Uh, it's a huge story. Um, and Will, as a journalist at the time, ended up being, you know, kind of center place in it. And I thought he did a really good job of uh, displaying what all of that meant uh, and also giving kind of a history of what was going on. And, and the reality of it, too, is, you know, the way that the way that things work and the way that things have unfolded and continue to unfold right now, sometimes history of very recent events is kind of insane. And as we get into these really ridiculous positions and this constant flooding of, uh, I don't even know what you would call it, garbage events uh, in the world uh, and just this overwhelming sense of chaos that comes from politics uh, you know, very recent history could be very important and very powerful. So kind of an offside going into that, but that's that. So uh, again, in, in terms of anarchist books, I've kind of gone over a few uh, and I, I, I genuinely don't remember, but I'm going to bring it up anyways. But uh, Peter Kapakin's Betrayal and a Factor of Evolution. Uh, I think that about halfway through the book, he starts to kind of go off the rails. And that's when he was seeing these this primal anarchy, seeing this anarchistic trend throughout all these different societies and amongst um, wild populations, amongst animal populations, and then in humans. The first half of the book is really good, effectively, anarcho-primitivist. And then the rest, you know, has a lot of hopefulness towards it. But in terms of anarchist books and anarchist history and kind of the classical anarchists, you're not going to get much closer than that book for... Uh, something I consider worthy. And a, a lot of other stuff Kropotkin had to say, a lot of other stuff he wrote, I don't feel the same for, but 
as as I go down the path and go through a lot of the ecological stuff and understanding uh, some of the different arguments that are going on, the idea of mutual aid as a naturalist argument, uh, and the fact that he had been arguing with Darwin directly about the ideas of natural selection and and had posed mutual aid as a factor of evolution, as the title clearly states, uh, you know, just in a historical sense, I get a lot of feeling of like, what, what would happen if that is the idea that it had taken off over Darwin? Um, very different. And again, sometimes the books that aren't on my list and aren't on my recommendations are as telling as what isn't. And Max Stirner, The Ego on Its Own, I hate this book. Uh, some people love it. And right now, with the way that things are going in social media, most things are taken through memes. And Ted Kaczynski's kind of gotten a life of his own because of that. And Max Stirner has gotten a life of his own because of that. And I always get the people say, it's like, oh, you don't understand Stirner. You don't understand Stirner. It's like, you, you've never read Stirner. It's like, no. I've unfortunately read Stirner. And Stirner is nuts. This book is... Yeah, it's horrible. It's just absolutely horrible. Uh, and it doesn't make sense. It's kind of just a, an, an elongated rant. And I think people just, you know, this is why people, I always say people don't quote Sterner, but they paraphrase them. And it's because they're trying to create some sort of meaning from the madness. Uh, so, I don't know. Yeah, do I ever recommend this book? Do I think it has had an important history or impact on the history of anarchism? No, I think all the worst anarchist tendencies that have come about are in relationship to Stirner and the ego on its own. And I can also say the same thing about whether or not I think any of Ted's stuff is worth looking at at this point. You know, after going through for a while this anarchy again in my old essay, The Message and the Messenger, I, I think I was probably being too generous. Uh, and even though Ted has come out and said that a lot of the tendencies that have fallen from him talking about stuff like the eco extremists. Uh, he's, he's distanced himself from them. He said he has nothing to do with them. He doesn't want anything to do with these people. You know, it's still his bag in a lot of ways. And it's not like the weird kind of correlations I've seen right. Anarchists try to make with, with some of these groups and us or anarcho primitivists or green anarchists or whatever. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's no question they had, they had fallen in his footsteps. And look where it led. Led to uh, horrible eco-fascist tendencies. And I have no interest in them. And I certainly have no allegiance as a person who is an anarchist with a lot of the classical anarchist thinking. Uh, or thinking that there's even, even having really nostalgia for a lot of the classical anarchists. So the fact that I bring a Kropotkin in is mostly even in, in the sense of his work as a naturalist, more so than his work as an anarchist, even though, like I said, the first part of Mutual Aid is, is amazing. It's really an excellent book. So, yeah, I don't necessarily consider myself too nostalgic. So, that's that. All right. So, the last subject I'm going to cover is a big one, anthropology. And I know I've gotten a lot of people ask me very specific questions and I believe that has something to do with the way that I had pulled these books together. Uh, and it's been a while since I had actually pulled these books together in the beginning. So I'm going to have to do my best guess uh, as to what I was thinking or what questions I had that I was answering. Uh, but anthropology is a huge subject. Um, 
and and at no point have I ever thought that there's there's anything about it that's not ever going to be problematic or or be need to be critical of. In fact, I I, I do think it did, everything needs to be approached in a critical manner. And history and anthropology are no different. Um, I've talked about that a good bit in writings, and I have for a long time. Uh, and I know that a lot of people who have tried to write off my work or anarcho-primitivism or primal anarchy in general are going to try and say. Uh, it's just because you rely on anthropology, and anthropology has all these colonial backwash elements to it. And I mean, you know, there's degrees to that. That's true, and that there's degree of that that's true for for most things, particularly written books or history or anything like that. Um, but you know, I mean, again, all this stuff comes with this huge kind of caveat, and also a lot of that comes from a misunderstanding or a flattening of anthropology to say that all things are equal. And of course, all things are not equal. And anthropology has a lot of shitty people within it, but it also has a lot of people who did really important work and really good work, and really important work in terms of understanding, you know, where we've come from and how we've gotten where we're going. So, uh, to give a kind of sense about what happened in anthropology, anthropology had the, the cultural anthropology in particular had a a pretty roof, important and and massive change of heart and understanding about the nature of of what uh, we had believed for a long time. So even when you look at somebody like Julian Stewart, who's the founder of cultural ecology, and as Marvin Harris would put it, he was effectively the person he considered the first cultural materialist. Um, the ideas in even the 1950s, and he was doing field work and things like that, was to, to think that Hunter-gatherer societies were innately a patriarchal society or tended to be patriarchal societies and that the the European understanding of hunter-gatherer societies was based on European uh, biases in every single regard. Effectively, women didn't have any... Had women or what was considered women's work wouldn't have value and that the hunter is the one who brings home the meat, so that makes it the most important thing. And of course... That was not true, and it was never going to be true, and it was just about our re reflections and re-reactions of what we believed was going to be true for hunter-gatherer societies, and then around the 1950s, that all started to shift, and it was Julian Stewart and Julian Stewart's students, and pre predominantly, who had led that call and had led to uh, the Man the Hunter Conference, uh, and that was the, the book that came out from that, uh, is edited by Richard B. Lee and Irvin DeVore. And it's, it was a huge book and a huge undertaking. It came out in 1968. I believe the conference was in 1966. But uh, as I talked to some of these people, and I've, I've talked to Peter Gardner, who's an anthropologist, and he had, um, he's had he got a piece in Wild Resistance Number 6 that's really good. Uh, but he went out in 1962 uh, to do his field work with the Pallian, or hunter-gatherers, nomadic hunter-gatherers of India. And... You know, he was part of that field and a part of that moment in time in which there was an understanding of the reality that we had gotten it wrong. Uh, and the way that all these things would be contextualized was, was totally wrong. And Man the Hunter was one of those things that was set out to really reflect on that and really say, well, what is, what is the nature of egalitarianism? And coming back to some of these concepts of uh, primitive communism and things like that, that a lot of these Marxists have been pushing but hadn't really done a great job of explaining or showing uh, because, of course, 
pretty much everybody talking about primitive communism was a, almost always was a man, but they're horribly sexist in a lot of, in almost all regards. Um, and so we're missing huge aspects about what the nature of egalitarianism egalitarianism is. Uh, so Man the Hunter, uh, you know, this of course it is an academic book, but there's still things within it that are easier to read than others. I don't necessarily think it's the book that people are going to read and grab the way that I grabbed it and the way that a lot of other people have grabbed it, but it's still a massive book and it's still a very important book. I know a lot of people lean towards Marshall Solon's Stone Age Economics and that his essay, Stone Age, Stone Age Economics, the, the title essay of the book, gets a lot of attention. Uh, and it is pretty straightforward, but I'm I'm not a huge fan of Marshall Solon's. I think some of his work is really important, and I think Stone Age Economics has some really good stuff to it. Uh, as a post-structuralist, there's things about his approach that I just don't agree with. Um, but I think that the way he had understood hunter-gather society and trying to understand it in a post-structural regard is one of the reasons why throughout his life he's kind of fallen back into this pit of um, standing away from the hunter-gather work. Whereas, you know, when you look at the Conference on Hunting and Gathering Societies that takes place every couple of years, the Chags Conference, most of the people in Man the Hunter, besides people like Solons, are still going and still actively involved, even though most of them are really getting up there in age, 70s, 80s, and 90s, those that are still alive. Um, you know, they still have remained actively involved, whereas Salins has kind of fallen into this this weird pit, and he seems to be very tight with David Graeber, who I do not care for at all. Uh, he's just, he's an awful anthropologist and probably a worse person. Um, and uh, his, his books are awful. And in fact, even things like um, the first book that Salins put out of his Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology it's like a hundred page book with no citations and him and I got into it when it came out. I think it was like 2002, 2003, 2004 or something like that. And he it was, it was just awful. I mean, I think that, um, of the three anarchist principles, he said one of them I think was ending NAFTA. I was like, all right, whatever, dude. Um, but yeah, there was huge chunks of the book that have been plagiarized from other anarchist anthropologists at the time, including Brian Morris, um, and yeah, it was just awful. And it's unfortunate to see that Solons went down that path with him, but almost everybody else who had been involved in the man, the hunter conference and in everything since had, had stayed with it. Uh, there's another book that came out called woman, the gatherer is edited by Francis Dahlberg. And it's, it's meant, I think in a lot of ways to be a counterpart and a response to, uh, man, the hunter as uh, from 1981. Um, I there's a lot in this book that's really good and a lot of books about this book that's really trying to understand and contextualize and, and, and take things a step further because for all its faults with anthropology in terms of incorporating ecology and in terms of incorporating feminism and um, all these, frankly, generally kind of Marxist critiques and things like that, there was a lot of self-reflection within the field and that resulted in a lot of really important work being done. I think Women the Gather, there's aspects of it that... Uh, can be overstated to a degree and it, it, but reading a book like this is what caused me to switch from saying hunter gather to gather hunter um in a lot of my writings and in particular for wildness and anarchy uh, one of the things i've done for the second edition is switching it back to hunter gather um 
And part of that just is really because of it's not about men's work or women's work or, or men's roles or women's roles. Traditionally, men's or women or women's roles within the society, but the way that these societies view the importance of meat and how they how they move and things like that, and the sexist implications that we've put upon it outside of that really have no weight within these societies. And if you when you talk to them or you ask them how what they see is important. Meat is always going to be the main thing. People do move, hunter-gatherers do move because of vegetables and because of produce and because of mushrooms, because of nuts, things like that, honey, but not like they do for meat. Uh, and so there's there's a bigger question about aspects of egalitarian societies that I think that just was not fully understood uh, when a lot of that was work, was being done and it was coming out. And I think that... Uh, the view that we have of it now is much clearer. And that's something that, of course, again, I am focused on articulating my work. Uh, so a follow-up of sorts to those two books is the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Hunters and Gatherers. And this is probably my most used reference book of anything. And there, there's a couple other reference books I keep around, uh, Penguin History of the World, uh, you know, a couple other books like that. Uh, McNeil, his, his major history books, and some of his mass history books, it's always good for me to keep around a cross-reference, but like this book in particular uh, came out in 1999, and it's just, there's, there's aspects of it that are focusing on uh, kind of bigger question, bigger pictures and things like that. But it's a lesser part of the book, and for the most part, it's just a, a kind of a, an overview of hunter-gatherers of the world in various regions and the archaeology behind it. And, you know, it's it's not nearly as academic as these other books, um, but it's just really excellent if you want to look around. And it's got a lot of uh, really awesome and important stuff in it from these societies that, that kind of responds to. And takes further a lot of the issues with some of the earlier hunter-gatherer research and some of the earlier anthropological and ethnography, which totally had, you know, kind of made this academic career of uh, focusing on people without actually taking into account the impacts of change and the impacts of contact and the impacts of colonization on these cultures and what it is these people actually wanted and how they wanted to be represented and how they wanted to be articulated and how articulate they were for the most part when it came down to uh, the way that they had actually lived. So, you know, for example, in each chapter in each society that's being looked at, there's quotes from people within it. And, for example, this is one amongst the Baytac of, the, of Southeast Asia, uh, just somebody from within the Baytac. Baytac have lived here on the uh, Tanabag River as long as anyone can remember, and there were a lot more of us before than now. And yet the forest is still here. If lowland Filipinos have been living here, the forest would be gone. So just like actually bringing out more voices, which is massive, and it's supposed to be what the basis of anthropology and ethnography is about, but obviously that wasn't always the case. Unlike those other books, this book is very accessible. It can also be very expensive, but it's also, in my opinion, very important. I've had my copy for, and this one came out in 2001, and I use it constantly, and it always stays on my desk. So as far as kind of overviews in anthropology and ethnography, this is a really good one.
And right along those lines is Robert Kelly's uh, The Foraging Spectrum, which is another book I think is a really good overview. And it, it really does a good job of, of covering a lot of ground in terms of hunter-gatherers. Um, you know, it's more of an academic book, but if you're looking for more in that regard, that's another one that I, I go to pretty regularly. Uh, I'll take a little bit of a side here uh, in terms of popular anthropology and also um, books that take from this hunter-gatherer ethnography work uh, and, you know, kind of go various directions with it. But one, one book I always get asked about, my opinion about, is uh, Chris Ryan and Cecilia Jethel's Sex at Dawn. Um, this book... You know, it kind of made a splash when it came out. They put a whole lot of emphasis emphasis on it and the, the sex of Dawn and the you know, supposedly kind of like sex appeal of it or the sexiness of it was supposed to be kind of a big thing and frankly churned me off from caring about it um, in a lot of ways. But this book came out in 2010. Uh, you know, I have my opinions on Chris Ryan and there's there's things about it that are or things about him and his approaches that I think are, are good and some of it that just makes me cringe. Uh, but it's it's indisputable there's aspects of his work uh, and aspects of this book that did talk about hunter-gatherer life and the egalitarianism of hunter-gatherer societies that was important for a lot of people to hear. I think the problem is, is this, you know, of course, the, the title and the byline, Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships. And again, I'm not bringing this up because I necessarily recommend the book, but just because people, particularly in around 2010, asked me a lot about what I thought about it. Um, I think some of the implications of it are, you know, I just don't necessarily agree with. Um, so it's kind of hard to distinguish the way it's been presented and the way people have kind of taken things away from it versus what's actually in here. And, and you know, with this and his his forthcoming book, Civilized to Death, you know, there is definitely a lot of crossover um, with what he's doing and what, what I've been doing and talking about anarcho-primitivism and primal anarchy. Uh, it's clear he had read some of Zer's and stuff, but he doesn't go into it. Uh, and I, I think he's mentioned on his podcast that he has. Uh, but the, some of the anthropology is, is really good. Uh, some of it is not so great. Do I recommend it? I don't know. It's, it's kind of pop pop nonfiction and it's got good things to it but i mean there's also a lot of stuff on primatology and i'm just personally not to just not something i care about as much but i i bring it up because the the books that i do think was handling it all better was the book that he was actually responding to which was helen fisher's anatomy of love and i mean again the book sex at dawn the byline is how we made why we stray and what it means for modern relationships and helen fisher's was a natural history of mating marriage and why we stray uh, I think Fisher's book, which came out in 1992, is a much better book, and I think that that Ryan and Jethla do a huge disservice by trying to misrepresent Fisher's Anatomy of Love in their book for their own ends. And they kind of try and make all these assertions about what it is, and I mean, effectively... What, what Sex at Dawn becomes viewed as is a huge argument for non-monogamy. And the way that they get there is by saying that Fisher is the opposite. When in reality, Fisher talks about, you know, this tendency within human relationships to, to have this kind of like four-year cycle or four-year burst. And she, she backs all that up. I think she does a, a good job with it. I'm not saying it's always true. 
Um, but between the two books, uh, there's there's more overlap than they would want to admit. In fact, the bibliographies could be pretty astonishingly similar. Uh, maybe sketchy, but I don't care enough to say. Uh, but, you know, for the people who have asked me about Sex at Dawn, my recommendation is read Anatomy of Love. Whether or not I think people should just read it out of hand, uh, whatever. But again, that's another one that I get asked about considerably often, so I'm bringing it up. Uh, another kind of generalized one, this is one that it is written in more of an academic style, but at the same time it's written well enough and it's it's enjoyable enough and has enough of a good presentation and being relatively quick without references. It's 184 pages. Uh, but a book I think is really important is Peter Wilson's The Domestication of the Human Species. And this talks about how you can see changes in, in cultures and changes in societies by the way that the the villages and camps are set up themselves. So in terms of talking about domestication, and he's saying domestication of the human species is about the literal act of becoming domestic. So talking about societies becoming sedentary and the impacts of, uh, you know, when you remove nomadism from the hunter-gatherer societies. So in that regard, this book is, I don't know, it's not, it's, it's worth it. If you think it's going to be harder to read or something like that, probably overthinking it, but uh, it's worth the time and energy, I think. I th- if you're interested in anthropology and you're interested in all this stuff, um, I think that book covers a ton more ground than it gets credit for. I'm going to give a couple more overview books here before I start and get into some very specific things. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I do consider myself a cultural materialist, and Marvin Harris was the originator of that, even though he accredits it to Julian Stewart, incidentally. Um but I, I think that his work and the way that he had presented it and approached it, you know, it was written for popular audience. Um, and it's, it, you know, I think a lot of this was really good. I got to admit, I kind of dig back through his work very often. I cite it, you know, considerably. I think he did some really important work. Uh, but as far as which books, you know, reading them cover to cover, uh, it's been a while. So... I have pulled aside Cows, Pigs, Wars, and Witches because it's it's a book that's very easy to come by. Uh, it's very common. It's starting a lot of introductory to anthropology classes and things like that. Uh, but I, I still think it's good, but I would not be surprised to find out that there were some things with it that I would have a hard time saying that weren't, weren't didn't, you shouldn't use updating, but... There's some really good stuff in here uh, in a lot of his books. Like I said, they're very, they're very accessible. He was a he's a good writer. He's able to convey things really well. But uh, Cannibals and Kings was really good. Cultural materialism, the book itself, I think is really good. And if you really want to understand anthropology, uh, his Rise of Anthropological Theory, History of Theories of Culture, is like the big book that everybody reads in anthropology graduate programs. Uh, and yeah, so. I think his book is really good, or I think his work is really good, but I, I do have to kind of give it that qualifier. And I was talking to a four-legged human about this the other day. I guess he was going back through one of Harris's books and had in a while and said there was there was definitely some things in there that didn't age particularly well. Um, but if you want to understand or you want a primer to uh, primal anarchy, um, what I think is even better than uh, Against Civilization is the volume Limited Wants, Unlimited Means, a reader on hunter-gatherer economics in the environment, which was edited by John Gowdy. Uh, this book came out, 
1998. And John's in it. Paul Shepard's in it. Tim Flannery's in it as well. But it includes a lot of the big hitters in terms of anthropology and in terms of really important stuff. It opens with Marshall Solomon's original Affluent Society, um, which was the title of or the main essay in Stone Age Economics, not Stone Age Economics. Um, to make a little correction there, but it's followed up by Richard B. Lee, Lauren Marshall, James Woodburn's Egalitarian Societies, which is one of the most important essays to come out of anthropology. Uh, that's the source of the immediate and delayed return uh, hunter-gatherer distinction that I rely heavily on. Uh, and it, this book is the, the arguments it has and what it brings out and what it covers in, you know, 330 pages of text, even for being anthropology or even for, I'm sorry, even for being academic in some ways, you know, this is awesome. This book really covers a lot of ground and really covers a lot of stuff that I had actually put it, ended up putting in a pamphlets early on in black and green's history. Uh, so I don't know if you want to, if you want a good understanding, a good background to a lot of the arguments and the the way that the view of hunter gatherers has changed and the role of egalitarianism has has changed. These are the essays that really kind of drive it over uh, a considerable history and do so in a very very powerful way. So I do have to mention Pierre Clastres' Society Against the State. Uh, I think this book is really good. Uh, and I think I, I wish Clastrus, who Clastrus died, uh, I think it was um, around 1980, perhaps. Or I guess, it, you know, this book originally came out in 74 uh, in French. So I, I guess it was sometime in the 70s. He had died in a car accident. It was tragic. Uh, but he was one of the first anarchist anthropologists that were out there. Uh, and he was a huge advocate for indigenous societies, and he had written some some really important work. And there was uh, the Chronicle of the Goyaki Indians is another one that I mentioned. It's an ethnography he written, and it's really impassioned. It's talking about the the Ache, uh, uh, and he he talks about their just the absolute decimation that came for them. That is something I've talked about on this podcast as well, and even with of gods and country. Uh, you know, his Chronicle of the Guyaki Indians is, is a vastly important book for me. Uh, but Society Against the State is the one that always gets pushed around. It's it's definitely more of a straightforward read. His book, The Archaeology of Violence, um, is even more straightforward than that. Uh, but the one thing I, I do have to say about it is that his view of indigenous warfare was reactionary. Uh, and... In it, he was, he was, as an anarchist, as somebody who was being a very loud and powerful advocate on behalf of indigenous societies, you know, he looked at the case of, like, the Anunnami and saw that their their violence was like, well, this was this is an important thing for them. This is a huge thing for them. This is about articulating themselves and articulating their resistance uh, to, to outsiders and to the outside world and, and acting in defiance of what the missionaries had wanted. Uh, so he saw what was happening in these societies at this very crucial, critical time, and then just went too far the other direction. So instead of looking deeper into the history and understanding that the warfare that he was seeing was extremely new and seeing the outside causations of it, both in terms of missionaries and anthropologists, such as uh, Napoleon Chagnon and Napoleon Chagnon's partner, James Neal, who was working for the Atomic Energy Commission, 
uh, and infect, intentionally infecting the Anunnaki with diseases just to see how it would react with a supposedly uncontacted population. Uh, so there was a lot of reasons why what Clastra saw and what another anthropologist, Jacques Lizzo, had seen on the ground was going on. And I think it comes from a good place to say uh, what effectively he's saying in society against the state is that the anarchism of these societies is articulated in a constant resistance to power. Uh, there's, you know, I think that there's elements of that that are true, but, you know, you can go too far with that and say that anarchism is about this constant struggle against trying to give people power. And that goes against pretty much everything we know about nomadic hunter-gatherer societies and egalitarian societies, uh, that there's historical events and historical moments and, and realities of colonialism and colonization that create societies or create situations where you have this uh, need to respond. Um, and, I, you know, if for, for good reasons, Clastrus just kind of missed the mark a bit on that. But there's still aspects of this book that are really good. And in terms of understanding horticultural societies and societies that didn't have exactly the degree of egalitarianism that Hunter Gathers did, like this is really important, really powerful. And as uh, we talk about in To the Captives, even, um, you know, this was one of the differences in talking about primal anarchy versus anarcho primitivism. And in terms of what Clastrus is saying, in terms of what the anthropologist and anarchist James Scott had said in a number of his books, uh, what they're looking at is. How does anarchism manifest within societies where hierarchy is potential or hierarchy exists to certain degrees? They're focusing on agrarian societies, focusing on horticultural societies. And when you look at it through through the idea of primal anarchy, these are articulations of the refusal to be domesticated or refusal to submit to power. Uh, and so I think it makes kind of a clear line between the two instead of saying it's just straight up contradictory. Uh it's more complicated than that. I think that that is helpful. Uh, so John Bodley has done a lot of really, really important work, and I really respect him, and I have for a long time. Uh, his book, Victims of Progress, is very accessible. Uh, and he's I know it's been expanded from what the version I have, the edition I have, and I think it's, God, I think it's like fifth or seventh edition or something by this point. I have the original one from 1975. But in terms of, of making that huge correction and talking about um, anthropologists who had looked at indigenous societies and were just out to try and prove this is this is what we were looking at in this, uh, this society at the time of contact. So it's this pure and pristine thing, just going the other direction and, and showing the impact civilization and colonialism have upon indigenous communities and what the resistance looked like and what the resistance looks like and also what the impacts in every degree and every aspect of its spread really are. So this book is excellent. And uh, another one I give, give a shout out to another one of his books that's been really important for me is his book, The Power of Scale, Global History Approach. So it's more of kind of like a bigger overview and idea about the nature of how society scale and the impacts of scale. But, you know, in, if you want to understand, you know, how we got to get lost in mass society. And I, this book was a, a huge part of uh, the essay Society Without Strangers that I have in Gathered Remains. Uh, this is it. It's talking about, you know, when society gets so large that you no longer have direct relationships with other people involved in it. 
And uh, as I'm going through this stuff, I realize I have Europe and the People Without History in this pile, which means there's actually a chance that even though I said I had gone over it before, I hadn't. So if I haven't, this is like the classic of ethno history, if you're asking me. Um, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and this is, I'm just going to say that it's great global history of the world that Europeans had exploited in 1400 to go from being this this underdog on the on the reality or on the verge of collapse into creating these global empires and making sure in the entire process to continually neuter any sense of pride that Europeans tended to want to feel about what it is they were doing uh, it was just incidental and it was incidental that that you know the the Americas and the southern hemisphere had been colonized successfully um or contacted and followed up and, and beaten into submission in a lot of ways or just destroyed and decimated in others. You know, this is this is really important. It's a really important book and a really important way of viewing history in general. And it's the kind of history that an anthropologist would write. So if I have gone over it before, I'm going over it again. If I haven't, there you go. But it continues to get one of my biggest recommendations um, or possible. Uh, so, all right, let's go through this other stuff here. Uh, warfare is obviously a huge thing for me. Um, I think in understanding the consequences of domestication, warfare is something that's going to continually come to the front. Uh, and a book that, that had really been important for me uh, is another one of Julian Stewart's students, Andrew Vida, War and Ecological Perspective. You know, if there's a good university library, you'll probably be able to find a copy. Otherwise, it, it can be really hard. Uh, and I had a photocopied version of this forever and then, you know, finally lucked out and found a, an affordable copy of it. It's it's a pretty, despite that, it's a pretty slim book. Um, but it's it's still really important in trying to understand uh, just, just in focusing on that kind of minutia of domestication and the impacts of where war comes from or the the justifications for war in any case being about resources and being something that comes about at a historical period rather than this is what has always existed. So he focuses on the marrying, he focuses on the Ivan, he focuses on Maoris and particularly the Maoris talking about uh, the introduction of muskets and the, the catastrophic, catastrophic of consequences that I had. And uh, another previous book he'd had, uh, that goes along very well with this is his book Maori Warfare, uh, and so that one came out in 1960, and then this is a follow-up from it from 1976. Uh, but if understanding warfare, and you want to be able to expand that into understanding colonialism and conquest and what resource wars look like, in a lot of ways, this is a very foundational book for understanding where, as a social animal, these these kind of mythos around war come from. And there's Raymond Kelly's uh, World of Societies and the Origins of War. So one is more of an academic book, but it's also really good. And it's a great book to diffuse and deflate a lot of the arguments that people like fucking douchebags like Steven Pinker put out there and talking about uh, war is how we always are and civilizations actually made us less warring. You know, a book like this shows that that's just, that's just not true. It's the total opposite. Um and it's a not to be it's Raymond Kelly, not to be confused with Lawrence Keeley, who wrote the book Warfare Before Civilization, which is a truly awful, awful book. Uh, 
and just, you know, revisionist history that uh, all these kind of people, Steven Pinker types, rely on to try and create this idea that, hey, civilization has been good for us. When we know in every single regard it has not. Uh, but World of Society and the Origin of War is a really good one. Uh, R. Brian Ferguson is, he's actually going to be interviewed in the next issue of Wild Resistance, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, as far as anthropologists go that are really involved in ethno history and really involved in just like deflating myth after myth, his stuff is actually is, is absolutely important. And two volumes that he had been involved in editing, one is War, Culture, and Environment, and the other is War in the Tribal Zone, which he co-edited with Neil Whitehead. I mean, like, I just constantly go back to these books and talking about the uh, the impacts of colonialism and the way that it amplified warfare is massive. And so all this all this work about Yanami warfare and talking about the the impacts of contact among the Yanami, it was R. Brian Ferguson's book, Yanami Warfare, that had originally contextualized all the warfare that had been happening. Uh, a lot of that got popularized by uh, Patrick Tierney's Darkness in El Dorado, which is a good book, which is also in some ways more fantastical than R. Brian Ferguson's work, but it was meant for, you know, a wider audience. It's still a really important book, but I think that, like, uh, there's some stuff that Tyranny gets into that seems less substantiated, but Tyranny lets the missionaries off the hook, and R. Brian Ferguson absolutely does not. Uh, I There's also an essay that R. Brian Ferguson read. There's a couple of them. You can find them online. Some of you have to dig for a little more than others. Uh, one is a more recent one. It's called Pinker's List. And so he goes through and just deflates Stephen Pinker's arguments for uh, the idea that, that life before civilization was more violent and more aggressive uh, and more prone to warfare than life within civilization. And he just decimates it. It's, it's not a particularly long essay, but it's a really, really good one. Uh, and yeah, I, I strongly recommend checking that out. But another thing is that he had an essay called The Blood of Leviathan that came out, I believe, in 1980. And I, I quote it quite often in my work, particularly in Cold Personality. Uh, but there's a quote in there that's just talking about how uh, Europeans didn't create a lot of the conditions that became amplified by colonialism, but they just set off a, a an explosion within native societies that amplified all these fissures that had existed previously. Uh, so it's like, you know, Europeans and colonizers didn't necessarily create everything that we would see in the wake of colonization, but the magnitude and it, just the sheer decimation that came within or, and always comes within the aftermath of our contact is impossible to overstate. And that's what the, the essay blood of Leviathan is about. And it's a, Really, really fucking good. Uh, so, you know, especially if you think anthropology is going to be uh, dull and just just academic in nature, our Brian Ferguson's a good counterpoint to that. Uh, there's a couple of volumes here. There's one, uh, Beyond War, The Human Potential for Peace by Douglas Fry. Uh, I think it's a really good book. It's a pretty popular book, and Douglas Fry has written a number of things along these lines. He is more along the lines of a pacifist. In fact, I think he might be a Quaker, but I actually forget. Um, and I do have issues, of course, with the idea of, to the degree it is it is brought about, of saying nonviolence is a virtue 
in a world in which colonization is still a day-to-day reality. Uh, but uh, Douglas Fry did edit a book called War, Peace, and Human Nature that is a, a massive book, and it was a huge thing for me. You know, I mean, you're just looking this around constantly when it comes to uh, writing Society Without Strangers and Hooked on a Feeling, uh, just because it covers a lot of ground and it is really good and really talks about uh, egalitarian societies and nomadic foragers and, and what conflict resolution looks like. But yeah, I mean, you can't overstate to certain degrees that, um, you know, it's, it's important to understand this stuff and it's also important and hopeful that uh, the proclivity towards conflict avoidance amongst hunter-gatherers doesn't be what continually undermines them. Um, or makes it possible for uh, civilization to to enslave and approach them as it had be- in in many cases before. But uh, the the Pinker's uh, our Brian Ferguson's essay on Pinker's list is actually in this volume as well. It is an academic book. Is there's not everybody in it is. And I would say most of it is written in ways that I think most people could get through it. Uh, not all of it's going to have the same kind of relevance, but it is in my opinion, a very good book. Uh, so the rest of these, I got, let's see, one more predominant overview book, uh, Colin Turnbull. He was an anthropologist who had done, or his, his most famous work among the, the pygmies. Um, and that book, The Forest People, was was a huge book. Uh, he'd done a lot of really important work, uh, but his book, The Human Cycle, is the one that I'm most likely to recommend. And I think it's a really good overview. It's a really good, uh, just anthropological look at understanding, uh, the life cycle within hunter gatherer societies and then juxtaposing it against, uh, modern civilization and things like that. And, and showing all the ways in which the, the depth of these differences of hunter gatherer societies are missing, in uh contemporary life and basically kind of you know learning his lessons from all the years of field work that he had done and it's a really good book and also i kind of love the fact that when it came out it was attacked because they were saying it wasn't academic enough and because you know he was too much of a primitivist which of course i don't see as an insult but it's, it's a good book i don't know how easy it is necessarily to find it um it's certainly not as easy to find as forest people, which is his ethnography, uh, and wayward servants, which is another ethnography of his. Uh, and both those books are also actually really good. So within anthropology, there's there's a couple different sides of things, and one is uh, an ethnography. Ethnographies are taking a look at particular societies and understanding their history, understanding their culture, and and really cataloging. And it can be horribly mind staking or mind numbingly academic in a lot of regards and just you know talking about weighing out everything and talking about all these different super scientific super uh you know processed kind of methods of trying to tear a society apart to understand it as as you know kind of facts and figures and numbers and understand it almost in, in terms of statistics and it can be kind of lifeless it can be kind of good to have that kind of thing but not all ethnographies are equal and there's some that are actually really really good and some that are a lot easier to read uh and so go through a couple of them kirk endicott and karen endicott's the head of man was a woman the gender egalitarian baytech of malaysia uh 
you know, some of these books are easier to find than others, and these ones that come from Wave One Press can be kind of all over the map. But this one is cool also because it comes with a DVD uh, documentary about the Baytech. Uh, but I think this one is really good and really important as well because it also shows that this, the, the Baytech are one of many societies where uh, women are, are very actively involved in hunting, and we're talking about bow hunting. Uh, so one of the more like direct direct means and more involved means than say using a a digging stick as a hunting tool or something like that uh and just goes to show how you know as a, i hope to make clear and of gods and country and there's a, a snippet of it in wild resistance called uh sex and gender less exact uh just talking about how all the the lines that we had wanted to make and have been making for a long time around hunter gather life just it, it just doesn't work so just to give a couple more examples of ethnographies and the different ways they're done. One is Robert Wolf's original wisdom, uh, stories of an ancient way of knowing. And so this is about the Signoy of Malaysia, uh, hunter-gatherer people. Um, and this is a book that is, is like a very popularly written ethnography. And what it tends to mean is that it's got a lot more stories in it and a lot more conversation in it, uh, which gives a lot more actual perspective on how you know, how hunter-gatherers interacted with the world and how they had seen things, and a lot less just tearing things apart and trying to articulate it as we would see fit. And this book is just, it's really, really good. Um, I, I strongly recommend that one. It's a very, very straightforward read. Uh, there's another one, Joe Kane, Savages. And this book is about the Rurani, uh, and it's, you know, he's not an anthropologist. In fact, I think he's a journalist. Uh, this book came out, I want to say 96, and yeah, 1995, 1996. Um, and it's really about the Rani and their fight against the oil companies and the consequences of contact and the consequences of colonialism and imperialism within their society. Uh, and it's just railing on, on the impacts of oil and the consequences and costs of oil. Uh, and the role that you you don't get to see a lot, especially in South American societies, of uh, individuals you know coming out and becoming getting a place on kind of the world stage in terms of of talking about the the things that they face and the reality that underlies this entire book is uh, the the parcel of land that the Urani had were living on uh, that oil companies were trying to take. Had all the oil been extracted, it would have only been enough oil to cover the electricity needs of the United States for 13 days. Uh, so it's a really well-written book, uh, and it's a very popular book, but it's it's a, a great approach. Uh, Lauren Raval's Trekking Through the History is also about the Iranian. This is a this is an anthropologist take, and there's some things within the book that. You know some of her approaches that are are more prone towards like liberal NGO kind of ideas and you know different kinds of questions about you know what what the impact or what the want of schooling would be like and things like that without fully going into you know the kind of catastrophic events or the catastrophic kind of uh, consequences that that all of that can have. But you know it still is really good and still talks a lot about the consequences of missionaries, which the entire one of the main reasons that the Ronnie became such a huge part on the world stage does have to do with the execution of five missionaries in particular uh, in the mid-1950s, which is 
the opening for of gods and country and uh a, a pretty important part of that uh rupert isaacson the healing land the bushman and the kalahari desert uh this book was is another one of those books that's kind of like he's not an anthropologist uh he's more of a, a travel writer kind of like joe kane uh, and talking about reconciling you know the idea of the bushman that he had had from reading all these anth- anthropological books and ethnographies versus the reality that colonialism had presented uh, as it as it expanded into the Kalahari. Uh, this came out in 2001, and it's a good book. I, I like it a lot. Um, I do recommend it, but it's also kind of leading towards James Sussman's Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushman. And I know I have talked about this book before, and I will continue to talk about this book. This book came out, I think it was 2017, yeah, 2017, and it is one of the top 10 books I've ever read and one of the, my biggest recommendations uh, for really undoing. Like, this is Sussman had lived with the Bushman for, for like 20 years uh, and really an amazing work of ethno history, of understanding the how history had shaped the world of the Bushman and the reality of, of the Kalahari and the impacts of the market economy and things like fences and uh re- reduced migrations and also also civil wars and everything like that so in terms of you know people who want to look at at the work that supposed primitivists do and things like that uh which i i think i think james Sussman would fall under the category of in fact the book he's working on now talks about work as this book does as well um and it's it sounds straight up you know anarcho primitivist primal anarchist um this book is is fucking scathing in that regard as well uh, you know, I want to say it's kind of like cherry picking kind of, you know, you're overlooking some of the, the gnarlier elements, which is why an essay of mine, Society of Strangers, opens with the Bushman executing somebody who had who had killed another another Bushman. Uh, sometimes you got to take the hard part straight on. And in doing so, if you contextualize it, you can understand it and how how these events occur in history and the relationship they have to society at large, you can really undo the entirety of civilization. And that's what he does. He focuses on all these things that we would consider ugly or things that we consider out of character with the representation that the Bushman had gotten from things such as, you know, movies like um, the gods must be crazy and things like that. And a lot of the anthropology that just had never really been updated to reflect what was, what life was like in the Kalahari. Um, this book goes after all those things and it does an amazing job and it is it does not require an anthropology degree to get through it by any stretch of the imagination i strongly recommend it and along those lines uh seat of Kachwar's development and ethnocide colonial practices in the Andaman islands again another one of the most important ethnographies i think that's ever been written uh and Strong recommendly, I strongly recommend that you read the interview I've got with her in Wild Resistance number six. But this book, in terms of questioning the relationship of contact, the relationship and, and consequences of the imperialism, even of even asking the kinds of questions anthropologists tend to ask, this is a very self-reflective book and a very it shows a lot of the questions that I've had um, as well about the nature of anthropological work and the nature of even working with uh voluntarily isolated societies or or anything like it 
and it's just it's it's really excellent she's a she's an awesome person and look forward to having more to, to do with her so just again the last couple uh hugh brody's the other side of eden hunters farmers and the shaping of the world is a book much like james sussman's affluence without abundance uh looking at arctic hunter gather societies and again he's he's kind of in that anthropological perspective but he's done documentaries and has a good eye for the narrative and this this book focuses on experiences of civilization and the egalitarianism and how it com- conflicts with the egalitarianism of uh arctic hunter-gatherers and their impacts and experiences with the market economy with canned foods and things like that and especially with missionaries uh you know, kind of really develops into that larger opening view of the consequences of civilization in general. It's another one that is not an academic book at all, but it's really good. And the last one, uh, Moore's Berman's Wandering God, A Study of Nomadic Spirituality. And I've never made it a question that a lot of my views about the nature of religion, uh, things that underpin uh, the work I'm doing of gods and country are largely due to Morris Berman's Wandering God. Um, you know, again, it's one of these books that there's times I go back through it and it's like I realize that there's probably things in there should be or could be updated. But, I mean, the book came out in 2000. It's not horribly old. And it just the basic premise of it is that the larger society becomes the more distant the gods and the notion of religion becomes. And he focuses on the immediate and delayed return society split and shows how that that impacts as societies become larger and more stratified. And uh, as another one, it's you know it's put out by SUNY Press, University Press, but I, I wouldn't say it's something that I think would be hard for a lot of people to get through. But uh, as another overview book and another kind of anthropological recommendation, there it is. So that concludes the book recommendations if people have extra questions let me know and there's a lot of stuff i know i did not cover um and i'm sure i will think of more and also i'm kind of wiping my mind of all this now uh, and i've already forgotten probably what's been in the first two versions of it as well but if you have more specific questions things like that don't don't be afraid to ask and again me saying that I recommend a book is not an endorsement of its author, of its full contents. I trust you have brains and I trust you're capable of thinking critically. Uh, you got to be because you're listening to this podcast. And if you've made it an hour and 40 minutes into this episode, I trust that you're interested and driven enough that you're capable of, of making these distinctions. But again, uh, I'll, I'll go back to what I normally do at this point, which is, I'll talk about books as they come up uh, through the podcast and through my research and how they relate to other things. So with that said, uh, I'm closing the page on the book recommendation episodes, this little trilogy, and we will go back to normal cycles and normal kind of things for future episodes. But again, don't be afraid to ask questions or ask for more recommendations. And I will, I will do the same. Uh, so I've got a bunch of interviews that have been coming out. I know I mentioned it early on about coal. Uh, I just had an interview come out with a podcast called uh, Last Born in the Wilderness. I did an interview today with a podcast, an anarchist podcast called From Members. Uh, and I think that will be out relatively soon. 
And on April 19th, which will be the one-year anniversary of the execution of the Shibibo Konobo healer, uh, Olivia Arrivolo, uh, the in, uh, interview I did with a podcast called Adventures Through the Mind, um, that episode will be coming up. And that one, I have to say, is going to be quite the doozy. And I think there will be a lot of interesting follow-up because that's that's a podcast that had been or is very, very much in line with, you know, being pro ayahuasca. And I, I know that a lot of things in the book really challenge that. And there will, there will be more follow-up as well. Uh, so there's, there's a bunch of interviews that are coming out and I've been doing a very lengthy interview with this Indonesian anarchist group that's been in writing and that should probably come out soon. And there have been other people that have contacted me about interviews, but we'll, we'll see as they go. Uh, I'll do my best to, to try and keep the podcast uh, moving at least semi-regularly to keep updates about that kind of thing. But as always, um, you know, my website, kevintucker.org, uh, and some of the other websites, wildresistance.org and primalanarchy.org, I try to keep those updates up there with those as, as well. Uh, but kevintucker.org is probably the best place for that. Uh, so if you've gotten this far and you appreciate what I do, Support is a huge, huge help. Black and Green has tremendous debt right now. Uh, any donations, anything you can do to to help spread the word and help get get all this out there is very, very appreciated. And if there's things that you think I should be doing, things you think I should be covering on the podcast, of course, let me know. Uh, the email address is blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And if you want to send a letter or anything like that, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. That's black and green. P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. Uh, and all the contact information is on all the websites as well. So primalanarchy.org, which is where the podcast is hosted and all the past episodes are, they're all on there as well. If you support the work I do and you want to help it out, uh, there's a Patreon uh, and the Patreon's under my name, Kevin Tucker. Uh, you can donate via PayPal, uh, paypal.me backslash black and green press. I'm sorry, just black and green. Uh, or you can send it to blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And also Venmo black and green. Uh, and all that information is on the website too. But any help that we can get, leaving reviews of the books, leaving reviews of the podcast goes a very long way. It's a very difficult time to be putting anything out, uh, but to help get get things spread out and everything else as well can be extraordinarily complicated. So uh, things you want me to cover on the episode, coming episodes and everything like that, shoot me an email, let me know, send a letter, whatever, uh, and we'll go from there. And again, if you do want your letters or you do want your questions to be read on the podcast and responded to, just let me know in there. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much.